0: Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Joel in the Old Testament, the book of Joel, the prophecy of Joel. You'll find it on page 761 in those Bibles on your seats, page 761. If you're using the large print like me, it's page 904. chapter 2 let's hear God's word blow a trumpet in Zion sound an alarm on my holy mountain let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming it is near a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people their like has never been before nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble. Like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet, even now, declares the Lord, even now. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. Even nursing infants. Let even the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say, among the peoples, where is their God? Amen. From 1918. To 1919, the Spanish flu raged throughout the world. If you know anything about it, you will know that it is thought that 50 million people died. Several times the number who had just been killed in the First World War. The Spanish flu remains the most deadly pandemic in human history. The main lesson. That historians of this pandemic and of other global viruses, the main lesson to be learnt is what? People study these things, they analyze what's happened in time, and the main lesson from all stages of world history and all locations of the world is this. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Tell people the truth about what is happening so right, isn't it? Look what happened in China just recently with what appears to be attempted cover-ups of the outbreak of the coronavirus. Donald Trump with what seems to be skewed truth about testing kits. We want the people in charge, don't we, now more than ever to be done with all spin and to tell us straight. Boris Johnson this week, I need to level with the British public. Many of us will lose loved ones before our time. The greatest public health crisis for a generation. We need the truth. Truth about mortality rates, truth about infection, truth about how to flatten the curve, truth about hygiene, about social distancing. We need the truth. And so friends today, I want to take this greatest lesson that human beings have learned through the centuries. I think it is right. The need for the truth. And in this time together, I want to tell you the truth about this pandemic. The truth from the Bible. Now, of course, of course, the Bible doesn't mention COVID-19 or swine flu or SARS or Spanish flu, does it? But it does tell us the truth about these things. There is a need, isn't there, to look at The world, all the time, and especially now, through the lens of Christian faith. And we're going to do it from Joel chapter 2, and I pray it will be clear and helpful, (coughs) and reorientate us to God in lots of ways, not just with the coronavirus, but with other sorrows that we're facing. So three truths for us to see today. Three truths. Here's the first one. Number one. The day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is near. If you're like me today, you feel, don't you, arriving at church like everything has changed, hasn't it? Have we ever known days like this? The last few days have been utterly abnormal. Surreal days, aren't they? I sat at my desk at 8 a.m. on Friday and by 3.30 p.m. I was only just getting to start writing this sermon. Email after email, one church is doing this, another church is saying that. School closures, yes or no. Saturday football, on or off. And that's just me. Some of you in your lines of work have been dealing with much greater pressures for weeks already, haven't you? I was meant to meet somebody on Tuesday and we couldn't meet because their office was closed for a coronavirus shutdown drill. All normality is gone, isn't it, at the minute? Everything seems to be changing. It's rapidly evolving. Things are different and unsettled. And we've had extra difficult news to cope with in our church family. And for Will and Mary at a time of already great change in their family. And the very ground under our feet seems to be shifting, doesn't it? Routines are disrupted. Normal practices And habits are interrupted. Expected events are on hold. Everything is different. Except. God says in Joel chapter 2. Except one thing has not changed. In fact there are many things that have not changed. But here is one. Here is one truth that has not changed. The day of the Lord is near. Just look back at chapter 1 verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. It's there in our passage, isn't it? Chapter two, verse one, for the day of the Lord is coming. This phrase, the day of the Lord, it is the prophet Joel's main message. He, he is a, a one track mind man, a one track mind prophet. He has a laser guided focus all on this phrase, the day of the Lord. And, and, and we use that word day, we use it in a similar way today in our own phrases that I think actually come from the way that this phrase is used in the Bible. We talk about D-Day, the first day of any great military operation. On this day, something decisive will happen. Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder, the heavyweight boxers, go head to head and the advertising the advertising headlines splashed everywhere say judgment day. On this day, they're saying all accounts will be settled. Somebody will win the spoils. We're, we're used to it, aren't we? To certain days marking really decisive events, cataclysmic turnarounds. And so it is here with this phrase, the day of the Lord is near. Ever since the fall into sin in the Garden of Eden, the whole Old Testament is aching for the day of the Lord. Longing for it. The day when God himself would come and right every wrong and crush every enemy and destroy every evil and eradicate every sin. Just like we use D-Day to talk about a famous military landing, so in the Bible the phrase, the day of the Lord... Tends to refer specifically to God as a warrior coming to earth. Coming as a warrior with his sword to execute judgment on earth. Listen to Isaiah chapter 2. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. Against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. He, that, that's why you have the language in chapter 1 verse 15 of destruction as the Lord comes near. Look at chapter 2 verse 1. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. That's why a military trumpet is sounding. God will come in judgment. that That's what the day of the Lord means. I said didn't I that today was... Uh, a break from our normal series in Acts and a break from Thessalonians but in fact it's not is it actually do you remember the book of Acts chapter 2 how did Peter explain what was happening in Pentecost the tongues of fire that came down how did Peter explain it as people were perplexed he got out his Bible and he turned to the book of Joel and he said these things must happen before the day of the Lord comes what have we just seen in First Thessalonians together Paul says, here is what you need to know. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. First Peter chapter 4. The end of all things is near. Friends, God has set a day. A day when he will judge the earth in righteousness and justice. When he will wield his sword to save his people and to punish his enemies. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Truth number one. We need to know that it was true in Joel's day. It is true in our day. The day of the Lord is near. It was near before the coronavirus broke out. It will be near after the coronavirus ends. Nothing has changed. And friends, here is what it means. If you are not a believer... In the Lord Jesus Christ, you have good reason to go through life with absolute unrelenting terror. On the one hand, you do not know a wise and good and loving Heavenly Father. And on the other hand, the Father you have spurned is the judge you will meet. Judgment is coming. One day we will all die. So let me say this, the Christian response to the coronavirus is not panic. It's never panic. Healthcare professionals will tell you that panic can cost lives and livelihoods as much as a pandemic can. No, we know, don't we, that all the coronavirus has done is confront us unexpectedly, uncomfortably, confront us with death. Death is God's line in the sand that he has placed over all our lives to say that our human project of trying to live without the true God by instead trying to be God ourselves, that human project has a failure rate of 100%. Everybody who tries it, and we all do, fails. You will surely die, God said to Adam and Eve. And after death, The judgment. The day of the Lord is near. We will die, friends. We will all die. Listen to Stephen Turner. The liberating thing about death is its fairness to women, its acceptance of blacks, its special consideration for the sick. And I like the way that children aren't excluded and homosexuals are welcomed and militants aren't banned. Con men can't con it, thieves can't nick it, bullies can't scare it, magicians can't trick it, boxers can't punch it, nor critics dismiss it. Don't knows can't not know. The lazy can't miss it, governments can't ban it, the army can't defuse it, judges can't jail it, lawyers can't sue it, capitalists can't bribe it, socialists can't share it. Terrorists can't jump it. The third world aren't spared it. Scientists can't quell it. Nor can they disprove it. Doctors can't cure it. Surgeons can't move it. Einstein can't have it. Che Guevara can't free it. The thing about dead is we're all going to be it. Let me ask you this morning. How much have you thought about what the Bible says is near How much does the day of the Lord fill your mind and emotions and your horizons? How much does the day of the Lord dictate what you do with your money? How much you spend on yourself and your kids and how much you give away without without a second thought? How far away are you keeping something that the Bible says is near, close? If you're like me, the answer to that question is much Further away than we should. Much further. Sermons in the book of Acts and Thessalonians. Teaching us about the day of the Lord. How much have you thought about it in these last few months? Not much. So what does God do? When, when we take what is near. And we push it far away. And live as if it is far off? What does God do? Joel says he raises his voice. He raises his voice. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. See, God does something to get our attention. We take what is near, push it far away. God changes tack. He's not finished with us. He has fixed the day, but we're not fixed on it. We're distracted doing other things. So God raises his voice. He shouts to us. So here's the second truth. Number one, the day of the Lord is near. Number two, the day of the Lord comes before the day of the Lord comes. The day of the Lord comes before the day of the Lord comes. Chapter two, verse one, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. It's not not quite as... As strange as it sounds, something coming before it comes. you remember 2012, uh, the Olympics? Uh, before the Olympic flame was lit, before the, the huge Olympic fire was lit, what happened? The Olympic torch toured the world before you got to the real thing. You saw the real thing in miniature, traveling the world, going out across the globe, all before the real ultimate thing was lit. Before the day of the Lord comes, God sends advance warnings, foretastes, trailers. He sends the vanguard of His army before He sends the train. The day of the Lord comes in little, many day of the Lord episodes before the day of the Lord comes. And here in Joel chapter two, how does the day come in miniature before the day in full? Wonder if you spotted this as we read it. How does God send it in advance? with locusts with locusts look back at chapter 1 verse 4 this is the crisis Joel is facing what the cutting locust left the swarming locust has eaten what the swarming locust left the hopping locust has eaten and what the hopping locust left the destroying locust has eaten this, this description in chapter 2 that we read together of an army advancing on Zion is not a literal army, it's a metaphorical army. It is an army of locusts, real, physical locusts. And the army of locusts and the destruction that they cause, Joel says, it is like a foretaste of the destruction that is coming from the day of the Lord himself. See it in chapter 2 verse 7. Like warriors, they charge. They're not actual warriors, but they look like warriors. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march in straight lines, verse 8. They're like a well-drilled army, these locusts. Verse 5, leaping on the tops of mountains. Not. It's not something a literal army could do. And that's why verse 2, these locusts swarm over the mountains. It is like blackness descending. There are countless millions of them. Verse 10, so many that they eclipse the sun and the moon and the stars. They turn the sky black. Verse 4, their appearance is like the appearance of horses. I learnt this week that a German word for locust means hay horse. In Italian, there's a word for locust that means little horse. And some people think this is because the head and the mouth of a locust look like a horse. seems to be in verse 4, doesn't it? Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. But the real comparison with a horse is there in verse 5. Why are locusts like horses? It is because of their power and the damage they can do. Horses are symbols of power and might like an army of chariots coming over the hill, so is a plague of locusts and the devastation they can wreak. Friday afternoon, literally as I was typing, writing the sermon, some of you will have received the exact same email as me from the Barnabas Fund. And the subject line of the email was coronavirus and deadly locusts. Right now in East Africa and Asia, a plague of locusts are swarming over vast swaths of the land, destroying everything in their wake. This is a living nightmare, isn't it, for people living in the midst of it? And friends, the truth is, Joel says, all of these things are the day of the Lord coming before the day of the Lord comes. This is God showing his world in real lived experience that judgment is coming. That he will one day call the nations to account. And here is how it does that. Because it humbles us. It removes all our strength and pride, doesn't it? It shows us we are not in control. That is why God does it. There is an immense similarity here, isn't there? Between a literal plague of locusts and the plague of illness that is sweeping the world at the minute. That sweeps the earth from time to time in different centuries. They cannot be stopped. That's the similarity, isn't it? They cannot be stopped. Isn't that the point of verse 5? Like the crackling of a flame of fire. Like a a powerful army. They cannot be stopped. They leave, verse 3, they leave only scorched earth behind them. Cities in lockdown become desolate wildernesses. Here, here's what somebody said who has lived through a swarm of locusts, a plague of locusts. The noise of locusts in a swarm has been likened to that of a jet engine due to the twofold sound of whirring and the crunching of jaws. They get into houses even through cracks and chimneys. Some claim they can even gnaw through doors. They strip the bark off trees. When dead, they give out a revolting stench and their bodies breed typhus and other diseases in animals and humans. Sometimes God sends us things that cannot be stopped. And friends, he, here is why you may have seen this in the last week or so. Here is why church leaders are wrong to say to their people, you will be fine. I've seen uh, well-meaning church leaders do that this past week. Don't worry, you will be fine. Stop worrying. The truth is, you might not be. We don't know that. It is possible that some of us may not survive this. We don't know yet, do we? Despite the best predictions of what will happen. But Christian people face things like this with the eyes of faith. Which very simply see this. This is what eyes of faith see. Sometimes God does things to topple our pride. Because the day of the Lord is near. And sometimes he does it, not just to individuals, but sometimes he does it across the whole board, across the world. Look at verse 3. Nothing escapes them. Nothing escapes them. one of the amazing things about the coronavirus is that it is leveling us, isn't it? Presidents catch it. Paupers catch it. Sports stars catch it. People stacking shelves catch it.
1: Oh, God has ways
0: of making us learn. However we seem like we're dressed, however stand we tall, however tall we stand, God has ways of making us learn we are all the same. We are all human. Sometimes things arrive on earth that reach right into the very heart of our corridors of power. Look at verse 9. These locusts Leap upon the city. It's not like it's just a rural problem out in the sticks. Somebody else's issue. Now that's what plagues do, don't they? They shut down Wall Street and crash stock markets. And verse 9, they steal things. Just like Paul says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Plagues and pestilence arrive like a thief. Unannounced, uninvited, unexpected, uncontrollable. We have sinfully thought we are in charge. We have sinfully thought we rule the world. We think we can do it all, know it all, fix it all, have it all. And like the locust, one tiny insect, but in God's hand it can be something so much more. Friends, the truth is that in this and in every sorrow, God is raising his voice to us, speaking to us giving us advance warnings. Listen to C.S. Lewis. You know these words, I think. C.S. Lewis, a man who suffered, greatly said this, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists in being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion. But it gives the opportunity for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. Friends, the truth is that in times like this, God is removing the veil, isn't he? Our thin tissue of control and leaving us bare. He's showing us, isn't he, how much we are in his hands. What does James say in the New Testament? Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord will, We will love and do this or that. Friends, in every frustrating change of plans, in every weekend bereft of world-class sport, in every inconvenience, in every altered horizon, God is raising his voice. Are you holding my hand or going it alone? Number three, the day of the Lord is near. So we must repent. The day of the Lord is near, so we must repent. Look at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord. It's how plagues work. Think of the plagues on Egypt. The point was to humble Pharaoh. To make him soften his heart towards God. Sometimes God sends him on his people. Amos chapter 4. I sent you plagues and still you did not return to me. The book of Revelation chapter 9. Plagues on the earth and still they did not repent. Come back to God. That is the message of every natural disaster And every pestilence that has ever stalked the earth. Because the day of the Lord is near. Come near to God before it arrives. Repent. Do you remember the Lord Jesus? Luke's gospel chapter 13. Do you remember? A natural disaster. A tower falls on people. 18 people in Siloam are killed. And Jesus looks at the natural disaster and says. Friends do you think that tower falling means that these people crushed by the tower are worse sinners than everyone else? No, they weren't. But unless you repent, you likewise will perish. It's very important that we get this right. The death of some is a sign of the impending death of all. It's not that some who die are more guilty, more worthy of judgment. No, the death of some... Is a sign of the impending death of all. When you go to a funeral. God is placarding your mortality to you. Right in front of you. He's making you literally stare at it. When you lose a loved one. God is reminding us of our own mortality. And all of it. Especially when we see these things happening on a global scale. All of it. Oh, friends, all of it is meant to make us come near to God, remembering together that we are sinful people living in a sinful world. Some of you will have seen uh, Mike Pence, uh, the Vice President of the United States. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I think it was, he was pictured in the Oval Office with his staff team. And you know what they were doing? They were praying about the coronavirus. And of course, it was open season, wasn't it, for mockery? The New Yorker magazine mocked him publishing a cartoon in which Mike Pence is standing there giving his advice. We remind everyone, Cartoon Pence says, we remind everyone that the first defense against this outbreak is vigorous hand-washing and repentance. Except, of course, he is exactly right. Do physical things to curb it, friends. Every wise precaution you can take take, prevent the spread as much as we humanly can, I want to encourage you to do all those things. We're trying to do them. We will keep you informed of other ways that we will try and do them in the coming days and weeks, especially here among us for our elderly members who will become our top priority. And as we do all those things, learn the truth that the Bible tells us to do outward things as a picture of what we need to do inwardly. Wash your hands, says James. What does he say next? Wash your hands, you sinners. It's because outward washing is a picture of inward washing. Friends, wash your hands. Don't sing happy birthday. Say the Lord's Prayer. Come close to God for 20 seconds. Wash your hands and return to God. Some of us here need to come to God like this for the first time. Maybe this worldwide moment is exactly the moment God will use to show you who you are. To show you what it means to come near to him humbly in repentance and faith. It's meant to humble us, isn't it? To cast us on God. Isn't verse, isn't verse 12 amazing? Return to me with all your heart with fasting. Now just think about it. Fasting. In the face of a deadly pestilence that is destroying crops. Friends, can you imagine being Joel? Saying that to people who've lost everything this past week. Locusts destroyed it. I've got a solution. Let's go without food. In the face of a deadly pestilence destroying livelihoods. What does God say? Go without food. Cast yourself on me. What does the world say? Get more food. Panic by. Get pasta and rice and toilet roll. You must survive. No, friends, Christian people know we are safe with God and we are safe. Safe with the Lord Jesus who gave himself up to the plague of death to save us from it. A day of darkness like no other is what Christ entered for us. Oh, we do not fear death because Christ has borne our sins and paid for our guilt. On the other side of death, we go to meet Christ, our king, our shepherd, our savior, our friend. I want to ask us today individually and together I want to ask us as a church family are we preparing in all the other steps we're going to take are we preparing to cultivate ways of casting ourselves entirely on God through this have you considered fasting praying Asking God for mercy on your family, on you, on our church family, on our loved ones, on our elderly brothers and sisters. Let's look like Jesus to a world that is lost without him. A world that is lost in fear and self-preservation. Look what God looks like, verse 13. He is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger. Friends, in the coming weeks, abound in steadfast love towards one another. Perfect fear drives out love. Bible says the opposite, doesn't it? Perfect love drives out fear. But in our world, perfect fear drives out love. Isn't that what we've seen? Racism, hatred, social exclusion, rather than loving social distancing. No, our way is that perfect love drives out fear. I read this on Twitter this week. In a time like now, Christian neighboring looks less like fearful self-preservation and more like servanthood towards the elderly. Those with HIV or autoimmune disease or no healthcare. Love towards our fatigued and under-resourced healthcare workers. Wash hands for sure, then wash feet. You know, friends, in times of great plagues in history, it is the Christian people, who have distinguished themselves as true saints. Ministers who refused to flee their people when others were fleeing. Healthcare workers who kept helping. Let me encourage you, friends, to be people of courage right now. Show the world where our faith is, where our trust is. Show the world what we do with our fear. And our fear is real, isn't it? Of course it is. But we don't panic with it. We return to God with it. We bring it to him. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Amen.